Welcome back to another episode of the Corporate Cowboys Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. And for the last couple of episodes of Season 7, we've been reading together The Naked Corporation, How the Age of Transparency Will Revolutionize Business. And we'll continue. The authors of this joint are Don Tapscott and David T. Cole. It was published 2002 by Free Press. Now, we're on chapter five. Hence, this is season seven, episode five. Let's begin. The title of this chapter is Transparency Among Business Partners. A green grocer just off of the Boulevard Street St. Germain in Paris offers a modest, very carefully displayed variety of vegetables and fruit. Behind each display is a sign listing the product's town, maybe even its farm of origin. It's quite possible that the patron knows the grower personally. Maybe he's her brother-in-law, or she herself brought the produce from a farmer in a market on the outskirts of Paris, or Paris, right, if you're in French. Your local stop and shop doesn't offer anything like this, but it may have a decent enough selection of wines from around the world. The best labels name the estate, sorry, the best labels name the estate on which the grapes were grown fermented and bottled. Appellation d'origin contrôlé is France's invaluable branding gift to the global wine industry. Apparently, um, I would venture to guess it means an appeal to the origin of control or to the controlling origin. So I'm going to say the origin of control is exactly what they're talking about, where the grapes are grown, where they're fermented, where they are bottled. It safe vouches that what's in the bottle has the personal touch of a grower with the name and nuanced reputation. Such trustworthy transparency at the cash register seems charmingly anachronistic, anachronistic in a mass market world. What does uh, anachronistic mean? Real quick. I want to get that definition down correctly. anachronistic in a mass market world i would venture to guess it it's like from before time something like analog to the digital age what does anachronistic mean belonging to a period other than that being portrayed yeah so it seems like otherworldly like it doesn't fit in like it's something not usual. It doesn't usually happen, right? Because we live in this mass market world where now relating to small farmers is uh, somehow weird. <laughs> How's that going for us now? It's fucking supply chain issues in 2023. Folks can't get meat and eggs. Pretty soon we're going to be um, eating lead. I mean, some folks are, right? Acute, acute lead poisoning. <laughs> Go listen to that one. <laughs> We, we are accustomed to hearing that a single fast food hamburger contains meat from dozens to hundreds of different cattle from several nameless ranches or that an inkjet printer 
was designed on three continents, includes parts and materials from four, has been assembled in two, and was altered by three dozen or more companies before it plopped down at your local retailer. Country of origin product badges mask a global complex that we can only imagine. Indeed, the inkjet printer is a miracle of the global supply chain. Its efficient choreography lets Hewlett-Packard, Canon, Epson, and Lexmark profitably price these printers cheaper than many a bottle of wine. I mean, come on. Some bottles of wine, well, okay, maybe bottles of wine have gotten cheaper with the way this uh, inflation thing is going and the fall of Rome, you know, bread and wine. Such modern miracles still leave many in the supply chain grumpy. They continue to wrestle with the subtleties of simultaneous collaboration and competition. Retailers and vendors tussle about outmoded costs and time-consuming screw-ups. Brand-named companies argue with their outsourced suppliers and distributors about who pays for mistakes and crossed signals. Innovators wrestle with collaboration and intellectual property issues. Employees wonder when employers will smarten up. Consumers don't trust what they buy, whether for value, health, and safety, environmental, or ethical reasons. Old habits die hard. Mistrust, combativeness, and high-handed buying practices characterized most supply chains in 2003. Despite vaunted progress by innovators like Walmart, Procter & Gamble, and Cisco, supply chain cheerleaders, trade association executives, academics, and consultants still find themselves pleading for more collaboration, trust, and transparency. Uh, Just a quick side note. Notice notice how the beginning of this episode, how the beginning of this chapter, I was kind of fumbling about with some of the uh, pronunciation. Maybe, maybe my brain had to warm up. You see, folks? I jump into this thing. I have never read this book. We're reading it together. So you're getting an authentic, a genuine reaction and commentary to it. This ain't ain't scripted. This, This is not scripted. Next subheading here, technological revolution. Despite the failures of the 1990s e-business mania, technology continues to change the way businesses work. Indeed, manufacturing, retail, and many service industries are in the midst of an information revolution that will extend transparency to the smallest, most granular business events. It's the product of auto ID technologies, radio-powered microchips, even tinier than a grain of sand, that broadcast a unique serial number like a talking barcode. Side commentary real quick. This was in 2002, fam. And notice how it was just a blip on a lot of people's radars. But now it's 2023 and motherfuckers are ready to implant that shit into their hand, into their fucking foreheads. Yeah, they're going to be like, well, you carry one every day in your cell phone. All right. Well, I know a lot of um, I know a lot of these folks would sacrifice a little bit of their liberty for a sense of convenience. And then when when they become inconvenient to. I don't know, the regulators, the controllers, the controllers, they call, let's call them the controllers, the uh, the developers, the cultivators. They can just turn off your microchip and then what? You're going to be out on the street. The most common auto ID tool will be the radio frequency identification tag. That's RFID. 
once costing $50 each and currently about five cents to 10 cents, these smart little communicating tags will soon cost almost nothing. Now this was 2002. Again, it says soon they will cost almost nothing. You know why? Who's, who's manufacturing them? They probably got little slave children RFID'd already making these RFID chips. <laughs> All right. It was, it will be good business to stick one on or in nearly any foodstuff, parts, finished item, package, pallet, or container that moves through a supply chain. Also tagged will be every working object in the supply chain from dolly carts to sorting machine to precision robots. Of course, all workers will carry auto ID tags too. I mean, it, it, this, this shit makes it sound like it's, it's going to be a badge of some kind. Like, like they will carry them, like they will voluntarily carry them. I don't know about just voluntary, fam. Bits and atoms merge. Soon everything will be connected. Oh, yeah, the Internet of Things. I don't know if you guys have ever Googled that, but that's gone over a lot of people's radars too. The Internet of Things. RFID tags aren't merely passive barcodes, it continues. They're smart and they can talk. Each contains a tiny microcomputer that exchanges information wirelessly with RFID readers in production lines, trucks, retail stores, homes, and handheld devices. A food item tag at the grocery store could tell you user-friendly personal digital assistant, your sorry, your user-friendly personal digital assistant, your PDA, about its calorie and cholesterol count for dieters and diabetics. Allergy reports about peanuts organic or genetically modified content, and so on. It makes it sound like it's going to be a PDA. This is what, 2002? Did we have smartphones back then? No, I think we still did. Ha I think we still only had PDAs. Uh, 2001. If I remember right, iPhone 3. Was it the iPhone 3 or the iPhone 2? Like the, the first iPhones, the first generations of iPhones were coming out around that time. They were being experimented with. But before that, folks were still carrying uh, Blackberries and using them as personal digital assistants. Blackberries were like this uh, standardized encrypted phone. Um, they were very popular among um, independent contractors and folks in corporate. About its calorie and cholesterol count, allergy reports, bah, 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 bah. on the spot, if you wished, you could get a product rating from a trusted advisor whether a favorite chef, consumer group, or environmental organization. Some growers will use this transparency to differentiate their tomatoes or lamb chops. Appellation d'origine controlée could very well become a new force in the supermarket. Uh, I'm going to stop comment. I'm going to stop commenting because I would like some uh, coherency to what I'm reading here. So you make your own opinion create your own opinion for the time being and like if i pop in it's going to be for something explosive like a motherfucking pistol to your head the oft predicted no checkout grocery tip may finally come true a reader at the exit instantly totes up the prices from all the tags on your cart you authorize payments with the wave of a key fob and off you go again this was 2002 amazon's already doing that bullshit the system loads a detailed receipt into your PDA and personal website. 
Why would producers and retailers spend money to provide such risky transparency to consumers? Retailers and their suppliers will install auto ID to save billions in the supply chain. Once the system is in place, they can hardly deny consumers the transparency that is so readily available. Indeed, consumer visibility into the supply chain will become a competitive differentiator. What benefits will sellers get? The supply side of auto ID is even more dramatic than the consumer side. As you toss a bird into your grocery cart, a nearby store reader will set off a process that tells staff when to refill the shelves. The reader also advises the grocer's automated replenishment system of your purchase. When a trigger number is reached, it will order more of your favorite kind of chicken. Aerobic, free-range, A1 organic, corn-fed, and purebred, non-GMO lineage, naturally. <laughs> yeah, this book, this book is, is something else because that shit doesn't exist. Let's put it that way. Very few places have chicken like that. That shit, that chicken sounds bougie as fuck, which I would eat the hell out of, right? But at the same time, it's probably going to cost two times, maybe three times the amount, at least one and a half times, right? Because in some instances, growing them organically and without, um, without external pressure, without external motivators, without external facilitators, just growing them naturally as nature intended for whatever reason is not subsidized. So it costs more. You see, there you go. Government and corporate. I was going to say shaking hands, but more like jerking each other off. (laughs) Jerk chicken. Indeed, consumer visibility into the supply chain. I already read that. Auto ID will track its diet, activity levels, protein to fat ratio, weight, body temperature, and other key indicators. It can also alert the grower to most health threats. As the bird moves from slaughter through processing and delivering, its existence, location, temperature, and humidity will be monitored continually. No need to open cases of packaged chicken when they arrive at the retail distribution center. The networked distribution management system will describe the cargo, report on the health indicators of each carcass, and divvy the cargo out to trucks bound for various grocery stores. Same at the grocers. No need for manual checking. Wireless data capture updates the inventory. Nah, this shit is not happening right now. None of this shit is fucking happening right now. It's possible. It could be done. In 2023, this shit is easily possible. You know what they're doing instead? Instead, (laughs) what they're doing is they're putting RFID tags, RFID locks on doors, on refrigerators, on, on grocery sections, right? And then and then uh, not updating the inventory, not keeping inventory because quote unquote supply chain issues. Yeah, we went through it for a little bit in the early 2020s because of, of something that made you cough. But in, in today's day and age, the, the, the rebound should have been unimaginable. The, the rebound should have been immediate. And instead what they're doing is they're dragging their feet. And pretending they're dragging their knuckles like fucking retards. What they need is a firecracker in the ass. Retailers and suppliers across a wide variety of industries 
from commodity raw materials to custom luxury goods will justify their investment in auto ID on cost savings alone. Thanks to automated replenishment, costly, quote, safety volumes of goods in stores or distant warehouses will no longer be needed. Just-in-time production, logistics, and assembly, while not quite fully realized, will be within reach for even the most complex and unpredictable goods categories. Inventories will be cut by 5 to 25% depending on the product category. Shrinkage due to loss, employee theft, and shoplifting will be slashed. I don't know. The shrinkage. Inflation. Inflation is shrinkage at the corporate level. I don't know why they want to rail on like this. It's railing on employees because they don't have a voice is the funniest thing ever. And then when like one employee, you know, chooses to really set themselves apart as a corporate cowboy and make a little bit of noise, they're the ones that have to face the fire, right? But a lot of the employees in general, they're they they are uh, undeserving somewhat lazy human nature makes them want them to be comfortable you have to be something you have to be superhuman you have to be extraordinary to be a corporate cowboy otherwise you're just gonna languish you're just gonna be complacent you're gonna be well i got family and mouths to feed so i'm not gonna rock the boat motherfucker if you don't rock the boat and the boat is sinking rocking the boat is just you taking a couple of steps up to to uh to the bow is, is it is it the bow where where the just just the, the the captain's quarters and putting in work all right <laughs> what is the bow of the boat is the bow of the boat it's off the side huh what is the bow of the boat because there's a bow and a stern right now the bow is the front I had that shit right. You see, because we don't even fucking sail anymore. We're we're not we're not conquistadors. We're not colonizers, and yet still, folks want to put that shit on us like we've been doing it for generations. And we're not. We're not. A lot of folks are wage slaves, and many are waking up to the fact that they were born into corporate, and their destiny is to become corporate cowboys. Continuing, shrinkage. Due to loss, employee theft, and shoplifting will be slashed. Initially, most savings will go to consumers due to fierce competition. Some of this will later be recovered as profit because Auto ID enables new services and tailored offerings for premium customers. New efficiencies will abound. Trucks, containers, and shipping pallets will keep the supply chain informed about where they are and what they are up to. Utilization rates and security will improve dramatically. RFID tags will automate recycling. Some items will route themselves back to their original manufacturer for reuse. For others, much finer sorting, for example, by various formulations of glass and plastic, will be performed at the start of the recycling process. Just a quick note, because that was the end of a paragraph. Quick note. In 2023, what 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 was the uh, the most wild thing that happened in the early 2020s? Epstein, right? Some kind of international, worldwide human trafficking human trafficking scheme, ch- child trafficking scheme, right? Okay, well there you go. Now you know why RFID 
hasn't taken off because there there are outside interests. There are other other special interests by motherfuckers who need to get clipped. Kill your local pedo, right? New efficiencies abound. Mm, already read that. Transparency. Continuing. Transparency is the watchword of the auto ID based open business web. On the rare occasion when, for example, an infected chicken gets through to a consumer, the source of the problem will be pinpointed quickly and precisely. Managers at all points of the supply chain, from raw materials production to logistics and consumer retail, will share real-time visibility into customer demands, inventories, production flows, and any problems that can affect the chain's performance. Winning business webs will abandon adversarial nickel and dime negotiation and operational opacity in favor of collaborating to maximize efficiency, market share, revenue, and competitive advantage. Damn, all of that sounds so beautiful. But <laughs> with the issues of human trafficking, drug trafficking, and uh, and I don't know, yeah, just those really are like the two commodities that are most clandestine, right? That are most illegal. It's human trafficking and drug trafficking. RFID hasn't hasn't real hasn't been realized. Now you know why. Now I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lay down any assertions, make any claims that like port authorities and whole ass governments are corrupt. <laughs> but if this RFID technology hasn't taken off, you know why it hasn't been subsidized. You know why it has not been integrated. You know why. But, you know, they have enough money to throw shots at everybody. You know, shots that go in your arm. They have enough money for that. They have enough time and energy and effort to do all that. But no, not to make the world a better place, not to make the world accountable via RFID and inventorying methods and all that bullshit. Sounds nice. Sounds nice. It reads nice in 2002, too. It reads nice in 2002 also. Indeed, managers will have no choice because human beings can't keep up with the volume of information that auto ID networks generate. They will depend on sophisticated computer programs that make decisions by combining new information with historical data, performance goals, predictions, and complex optimization algorithms. Supply chains will compete on the basis of information intensity. Transparency and trust will not just be good manners. They will define the business. Sorry. <laughs> it kind of fits. They will define the business between winning and losing. There's business opportunity everywhere. That's the sentence actually read. They will define the difference between winning and losing, but it's business and business is war. The next subheading, pundit dreams, question mark, pundit dreams. What? Many leading companies are promoting auto ID as the wave of the future. Indeed, there is more disciplined commitment to this technology in high industry places than we saw in the two or three years after the appearance of the web. The auto ID center is an industry funded research program headquartered in at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that's the US, and at the Cambridge Institute for manufacturing in Lane Mill, Cambridge, that's the UK. Its vision is to revolutionize the way we make, buy, and sell products 
by merging bits, that's computers, and atoms, that's humans, together for optimal mutual communication. Everything will be connected in a dynamic automated supply chain that joins businesses and consumers together to benefit global commerce and the environment. Yeah, I like how they tack on the environment after. But first, global commerce. <laughs> hence, why the, hence why these two places share the name Cambridge. Go go Google that shit. You go look it up. I'm not going to become conspiratorial on this podcast. The center's sponsors include companies and government departments that would use auto ID like Canon, Coca-Cola, the U.S. Department of Defense. Why the first two? The first two are big-ass corporations. Maybe they're just throwing them together at random no, in, in no particular order. Canon, Coca-Cola, the U.S. Department of Defense, Gillette, Johnson & Johnson, Target, Tesco, and Walmart, and technology vendors like Accenture, AC Nielsen, IBM, Intel, NTT, Philips, SAP, and Sun. This initiative faces the usual hurdles of industry-wide innovation, technology standards, organizational and process change, business case development, competitive parochialism, regulatory hurdles, and sheer inertia. But the initial steps and the associated names are promising. The first here, there's a couple of points. In November 2002, Gillette announced plans to buy 500 million RFID tags for use on its razors from startup Alien Technology. The company plans to use them in stores for inventory management and theft prevention. If the shelf notices that a lot of razors have left at once, it will notify store security. And also to track products as they move from factory to supermarket. Prior to this announcement, the largest order ever for RFID tags was 30 millions for use in Star Wars toys produced by Hasbro. The second, Marks and Spencer replaced printed barcodes with RFID tags on 85 million returnable plastic food trays that suppliers deliver to its six distribution depots. The company will save money on printing, labor associated with attaching and reading labels, and a variety of other inefficiencies. Its goal is to displace $8.5 million per year. What is this? 85 million returnable, returnable plastic food trays. Returnable plastic food trays. I gotta go look up what Marks and Spencer is. Mm, returnable plastic food trays. The company will save money on printing, labors associated with attaching and reading labels. Plastic food trays, are they just disposable food containers? Or or I don't know. They could be used in like the prison the prison industry, right? I don't know. I don't know why I'm why I'm trying to read too deep into it. Continue reading, Alex. The next RFID improved transparency healthy and safety for 37,000 runners in the 2002 Chicago Marathon. All racers stuck the championship, the, the champion chip, they called it, huh? All racers stuck the champion chip RFID on their shoes with a few readers strategically placed along the route for the first time, the marathon could record each runner's precise start, finish, and split times. The readers also discouraged cheating. An unintended health and safety benefit happened at the end of the race. 
before many runners who waited in line for official finishing times instead of properly cooling down ended up in a medical tent. Now that they can get results as soon as they cross the finish line, they can begin cooling down immediately. That's, I guess that's a positive. That's a positive. But what are you running from? <laughs> Alex, fucking smartass. In June 2003, Walmart told its top 100 product suppliers to put RFID on all its shipping pallets by 2005. Its CIO, that's the chief information officer, Kevin Turner said, quote, RFID will give new meaning <clears throat> to the notion of real-time management. We see opportunities in everything from global supply chain visibility to tracking on-shelf product availability to replacing our current anti-theft tags to allowing customers to check themselves out when they leave our stores. Why would I check myself out? I don't fucking work there. The transparency imperative in the supply chain is unmistakable, but this is neither your grandfather's supply chain nor your grandfather's firm. Well, I guess if I'm checking myself out, right, it's going to be items that that might cause question, but then you could pick up small number of items at different stores and just pay cash. But you show up on a lot of cameras. I don't know. I'm just thinking operational security. The next subheading, the rise of business webs. In, in the beginning, by the beginning of the 20th century, Adam Smith's vision of compact owner-operated businesses had given way to a capitalism of large-scale, vertically integrated joint stock corporations. By the beginning, see, I, I missed, I, I mis-enunciated that. Did you hear the tone, how I fucked that sentence up? Just the tone, like it's written correctly. I fucked it up. And I, I'll cop to it. By the beginning of the 20th century, Adam Smith's vision of compact owner-operated businesses had given way to a capitalism of large-scale, vertically integrated joint stock operations. These firms operated with supplier-driven command-control hierarchies, division of labor for mass production, lengthy planning cycles, and stable industry pecking orders. Ford Motor Company didn't just build cars. It owned rubber plantations to produce raw materials for tires and marine fleets for shipping materials on the Great Lakes. Hearst didn't just publish newspapers. He churned out newsprints from his millions of acres of pulpwood forest. IBM's most profitable products during the Great Depression were cardboard punch cards. It's billed and sold clocks until well into the 1970s. While big to-do-all corporations seemed natural in the middle of the 20th century, they run counter to a core principle of liberal economics, that the open and competitive marketplace is the best source of value for money. Could Ford's private fleet outperform specialized merchant marine companies like American Steamship? If not, why did Ford enter the shipping business when it could get better, faster, and cheaper services from outside parties? Pushing the issue, isn't vertical integration eerily similar to Soviet central planning? 
Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the economist and disillusioned socialist Ronald Coase considered these issues during the 1930s and asked an even more fundamental question. Why does the firm exist? I got a simple answer. Because business is war. There you go. My answer is even more fundamental. His Nobel Prize winning answer was transaction costs, which arise when entrepreneurs expend time and money to find suppliers, write contracts, handle the complexities of working with other parties, coordinate their activities, and check the quality of their work. Coase argued that a firm will expend as long as caught, that a firm will expand, expand, not expend. Because I was thinking about expending expenditures, expenditures, costs, cost expense. Coase argued that a firm will expand as long as costs inside are lower than outside. In the 1930s, the era of manual typewriters, telexes, and telephones, and no computers or internet, transaction costs were so high that vertical integration made sense. Beginning in the 1970s, information and communications technologies caused transaction costs to plunge so low that Coase's law put the engine of corporate expansion into reverse as firms began to outsource activities to the competitive marketplace. Faster, better, and cheaper information in a word, in a word transparency, resulted in lower transaction costs and the emergence of a new kind of firm. We described this new sort of firm or collection of firms with co-author Alex Lowy in our book, Digital Capital. Researchers have given such groupings various names, virtual corporation, a business ecosystem, a business web, that's our preferred name. Um, this is the book saying it. This is this, it's this book's preferred name, the B-Web. If you remember that, it, our, it, we were introduced to it, I think, chapter one or chapter two. So go listen to that. Season seven, episode one or episode two. Uh, I don't know why they went with B-Web. Hardly anybody uses it right now. But it could be because it was a, uh, a buzzword in 2002 in the business world. And nowadays, you just know that as your network, your quote unquote, your network, your circle, your sphere of influence, if you will. A value network, a process network, or more prosaically, outsourcing. Yeah, dog, you're just outsourcing work. You're just pitching work to somebody else. I mean, everybody eats, right? Sharing the wealth, essentially, but you're sharing the duties. You're sharing the responsibility. You're sharing the, uh, the integrity. The accountability also, you're sharing the wealth. Whatever you call it, they say, continuing, whatever you call it, most observers agree that organizations increasingly focus on what they do best and rely on partners, suppliers, and customers for the rest. Economists who built on Coase's thinking pointed out that one cost of going outside is the business risk of dealing with outside agents who might end up competing with a firm's core business or make it a hostage to their unique competencies. Such risks apply, especially when a supplier can monopolize a unique capability that is central to what a firm does. This happened to IBM after it launched what was to become the main design 
for personal computers in 1983. It somewhat, quote, open design sourced the operating system from a new company called Microsoft and the main processor chip from Intel. By the end of the decade, IBM lost control of the PC markets to Microsoft and Intel, which became, which came to dominate the industry and capture most, most of its profit. Well, I mean, it just goes to show. A little, a little cloak and dagger, a little skullduggery never hurt, right? IBM lost control of it. Microsoft and Intel were on the rise. And nowadays, I mean, you got other firms that are doing things totally different uh, based on what Microsoft and Intel have done in the past. And they're doing it with systems and processes and designs. So regardless, micro, that now the, the control, the perceived control that Microsoft and Intel might have only exists in terms of uh, operating systems and these chips, but not, not anything else because they believe they can monopolize it. <laughs> and, and now they're so... And now they're so worried about keeping control of it. IBM might be off doing something different, right? Or they might not be. Maybe they're still licking their wounds fucking 20, 30 years later. But they might be off doing something different and specializing in something different, growing competent and uh, potentially monopolizing something else. Such risks apply particularly in areas that are highly strategic to a company. Some might argue that strategic activities, the essence of what makes a particular firm unique and competitive, should always remain inside of the firm. But who's to say what's truly strategic? Didn't I just address that before? Yeah, you see, IBM could be doing something different, something differently, strategically, from what Microsoft and Intel are doing now. That could potentially come back and bite Microsoft and Intel in the ass. But... uh Maybe I didn't keep track of it. Maybe in the past 20 years, something occurred that I didn't track or it might still be in the works. You don't know. Maybe there's a corporate cowboy somewhere willing to put in a little work, do a little dirt and put IBM back on the map or another firm, any other fucking firm, right? But who's to say what's truly strategic? Competitive conditions as well as the new flexibility that results from declining transaction costs can justify can justify outsourcing just about anything. <laughs> That's anything. It doesn't even have to be related to tech. It doesn't have to be related to operating systems and chips. As it's 2001... Annual report says, quote, IBM used to be the poster child for closed proprietary computing. Once at the heart of its ability to dominate its industry and control its, its customers. Then it lost the PC to Microsoft, while its homegrown software for big computers fell to the non-proprietary Unix. U-N-I-X, Unix. Maybe I'm saying that right. After a few short years, IBM was gasping for breath. Then, under Lou Gerstner, it came to terms with these changes and the new economics of the computer industry by shifting to professional services and business software. It dumped its operating systems business in favor of Linux. Now, IBM touts an operating system produced by a business web. 
an industry-spanning, self-organized collection of individuals and companies, including itself, of course. If IBM can take such risks, then perhaps anything can be outsourced except strategic and operational oversight and coordination. A multi-billion dollar firm might consist a little more than a board might consist of little more than a board of directors supported by a CEO, a CFO, and a small staff. It's true. Yeah, look at uh, in 2020, what is it, 2023 now? 2022, 2023, look at FTX. <laughs> Yo, look at the fucking staff that work there. <laughs> Woo. Business webs are everywhere, it says. Continuing. The most striking, uh, I mean... If you're, if you're listening to this in the future, 20 years later, fucking 2043 or something, you might not remember or you might not know what FTX is about. It might just be a blip on the radar. Maybe we've already hit hyperinflation and billions of dollars are worth pennies. I don't fucking know, right? But it's funny now. If you don't get it, I'm sorry. <laughs> not really sorry. Business webs are everywhere. Continuing. The most striking are led by internet-based companies that defied the cynics and sustained huge growth with minimal physical assets and vast quantities of market partners. A quintessential example is eBay, an exchange marketplace for millions of sellers and buyers and now a mainstream retail industry player. When, while it's reported revenues in 2002 were $1.2 billion with a two hundred million, a two hundred fifty million dollar profit. Its retail marketplace facilitated overall sales of fifteen billion dollars. With four thousand employees, this means that eBay facilitated three point seven five million dollars in auction sales per employee, and got three hundred thousand dollars in company revenues per employee. Compare this to Walmart with sales of $220 billion and a profit of $6.7 billion, a 3% overall profit versus eBay's 21%, and 1.3 million employees. It got $169,000 in company revenues per employee. So per capita, right? If we're talking corporate, if we're talking corporate states, corporate nations, multi um, multinational, international conglomerates, right? That have a, a, a international presence. I'm sorry, because eBay could easily just be headquartered only in the United States, but they might have branch offices in other countries, right? So for the sake of argument, if we're talking per capita, because this is corporate war, I mean, these motherfuckers don't really have an allegiance. It's just wherever the tax cuts come from. For the most part, for the most part. I mean, sometimes it's culture, sometimes it's nationality, sometimes it's it's some other human value, right? But for the most part, it's money, it's dinero. Per capita, eBay cleared more than Walmart. And eBay's almost solely online. Walmart just started breaking in. Walmart just started breaking in like at the end of the, the 20 teens. So like a little bit before 2019, just started breaking in and started using the internet to uh, to make sales and to make home deliveries. Now they're like, 
I want to say they're catching up, but they're not really catching up to Amazon. Amazon's facing its own issues in today's day and age with quality control. And um, that's just about it, quality control. (laughs) But Walmart, you know the physical product is coming from where it might have been shelved. So it's coming out of a supply chain that Walmart has already vetted. Amazon, well, has not. (laughs) All right. Business webs aren't just for specialized e-commerce firms. They are also widespread in traditional industries. Young technology companies like Cisco and Dell were early adopters of the internet to spike efficiency and innovation in their partner networks. Notoriously, neither makes much of what it sells. They're just, they're just facilitators. They're just middlemen. They're just professionals. I, I like the idea of middlemen, but I think middlemen get a bad rap for being dicks, for being assholes. Some of them for being too greedy, right? But if you are a middleman, you can, you can, you have the ability to be a point man, but you've got to be professional. You've got to be a corporate cowboy. You've got to exude trust. You have to be competent and you have to be competent. You have to know what the fuck you're doing so that you don't get knocked off because you're trying to fuck up, trying to fuck off both parties or however, whatever number of parties that you're dealing with. You don't want to end up clipped, man. Business, business is war. Business is personal. Older companies with legacies of vertical integration, continuing, have also become business web choreographers. Detroit's big three focus increasingly on stick handling the complexities of the car business using business web partners for everything from design to color selection to information technology services and parts manufacturing. Daimler Chrysler even lets Magna International assemble entire vehicles. For cobbling none of the shoes it designs and sells, Nike is put down by some as a hollow brand. Walmart's logistics feats with firms such as Johnson & Johnson enable it to crush competitors like a Sherman tank. Everywhere, outsourcing is hot, spawning the exceptional growth of companies like Accenture and CGI, that's information technology and business processes, Celestica and Selectron, that's electronics manufacturing, UPS and DHL, that's logistics, and BioVail and BioVail and CGCI, GCI, that's clinical drug trials. BioVail and GCI. Maybe I'll look into that. Transparency, both in it. I mean, I don't know if they're still around. I, this is the first time I actually read about them. BioVail, I think I might have heard of. GCI, I mean, there's so many acronyms. There's so many abbreviations and initials. I can't track them all. But, but BioVail, I may have heard of, but worth a look into. Transparency both enables and is required for networked businesses, networked business models. I fumbled that one. Transparency both enables and is required for networked business models. CGI's Michael Roach explains, quote, we're positioning ourselves as an extension of our client's capability value chain. Their business processes are our business processes. Just to get an outsourcing partnership going, each party needs vast information about the other, their capabilities, their history, processes, systems, even culture. 
Because 70% of CGI revenues come from such long-term relationships, transparency is a permanent condition. Says Roach, quote, if you're going to be an extension of a client's business, you need to be open in fact, aligning your strategy and behavior with your clients. If your clients are doing well, you do too. If your clients are doing badly, so do you. Pain and gain are shared across the value chain. Nice. I like that. It rhymed. <laughs> S-Webs. This is the next subheading. S-Webs in the B-Web. <laughs> S-Webs in the B-Web. Okay. As a piece of working computer software, Linux is a tangible, albeit virtual product, but not all value comes from tangible goods, whether hard, soft, or virtual. Also important, increasingly so in a knowledge-based economy, are exchanges of intangibles, what we have previously called digital capital, and what others describe as knowledge assets or intellectual capital. Knowledge, relationships, ideas, processes, and trust are assets that compare in importance to goods, services, and cash. Many Linux developers vigilantly defend the intellectual commons of open source and expect mega players like IBM to abide by the community's rules. Thus, the Linux open source community is, for IBM, both a business web, which develops a product that it takes to its customers, and a stakeholder web, which scrutinizes IBM's behavior as an industry gorilla. A gorilla as in moving clunky and uncivilized. <laughs> in this sense, a stakeholder web, those are the S-webs from the subheading. S-webs and the B-web, stakeholder webs within business webs. Again, I, why the S-web and B-web? I, I haven't heard of them before reading this book, but they exist. And maybe because this was published in 2002, there are some professionals still in the game, still in the system, who abide by these by these terms, S-Web and B-Web. So you um, tread lightly, right? Tread lightly, be competent, be capable, know what the fuck is being talked about if S-Webs and B-Webs are being thrown around. Because that to me is just another network, another network to crack, another network to infiltrate, folks to shake hands with, rub elbows with, potentially make business happen with. Okay, so Hewlett Packard, oh, whoops, whoops, hold on, I'm, I skipped the sentence. In this sense, a stakeholder web, which we described in chapter two, yeah, go, go listen to season seven, episode two, that's where S-webs, we dive deep into S-webs. Chapter two, chapter two <laughs> is a dimension is a dimension of the business web. Stakeholder webs are a dimension of the business web. Aligning the hopes, expectations, and demands of the S-web with the economic imperatives of the B-web is a winning strategy. Hewlett Packard has recognized that its S-web extends beyond obvious cash nexus relationships and also sees the S-web as facilitating growth of its B-web. Its e-inclusion program is a, quote, vision 
of empowering and enabling all the world's people to access the social and economic opportunities of the digital age. The program relies on partnerships with companies, governments, development agencies, nonprofit organizations, and individuals. In fact, an explicit goal is to turn such partnerships into an ecosystem. Hewlett Packard embraces organizations like McKinsey and Company, Grameen Bank, the United States Department of Commerce, Freedom from Hunger, and the World Resources Institute to align its business web with an extended stakeholder web. Sample projects include a microfinance initiative, which provides small, small loans from $50 to $750 to poor women to help them build businesses and bring their families out of poverty. Uh, this happens in third world countries. I've seen it. Development Space Network, uh, which uses technology to link donors, including Hewlett Packard employees, to social entrepreneurs and the Global Digital Divide Initiative, a world economic forum project aimed at fostering technology-driven economic growth and entrepreneurship in developing countries. I wonder where RFID chips are going. In all these projects, HP expects to simultaneously develop new capabilities, products, and services, expand its markets and emerging economies, and help build a better world. I don't know, man. If you got the WEF there, the World Economic Forum, more than likely, motherfuckers are getting tagged with RFID chips. <laughs> Deborah Dunn, HP's Senior Vice President of Corporate Affairs, comments, quote, we do this for two reasons. One, to grow revenue. Oh, there you go. And the other is that we need a stable global context for our business to thrive. So wait, where, where are the people? One is revenue and the other is growth. Nice, corporate. The world has never been more unstable in the past 18 years of my career at HP. As a company, we need to be part of solving these problems. End quote. The flip side of all this is that companies should recognize that even S-Web opponents can turn around to contribute to the economic goals of the B-Web. As we describe in Chapter 6, that was Season 7, Episode 6. We're not there yet. Stay tuned. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, forced its agenda onto the fast food industry during the late 1990s. Some tried to ignore the organization with negative impact on the reputation and customer loyalty, while others, Burger King in particular, engaged with it to their benefit. The business web is an expensive concept, depending on the initiative or the issue. Its S-Web dimension, that's dependent, of course, on transparency, can include millions of people, all sorts of stakeholders, and a vast array of issues. Okay, the next little subheading here, trust and transparency in the business web. A little a sub subheading, the potential, the potential. Where transaction costs are low, a business web gets get gets going more easily and performs better. Trust lowers transaction costs. Transparency boosts trust. It's wow, it's it's like cyclical. I like that. Transparency in a business web also improves operational efficiency. This becomes apparent when companies use new techniques for to wring costs out of their supply networks. So they're eliminating costs through transparency, through increased trust. 
They just flow more cohesive. They flow is, is more cohesively proper. I mean, it sounds unreal, right? It sounds surreal to move more cohesively, but they move in, in, a, in a more orderly fashion, more uh, uh, closer together. You see, I can't say more closely. So if I can't, if I can't say more cohesively, what is? Um, they just move with an increased, with an increase in cohesiveness. I'll put it that way. I guess I'm going to go the long way on that and say they move with an increased cohesiveness. That is, there is less slack. There is less clearances. Why? Because they know and understand one another. They trust one another's capabilities. They, they, they trust one another's competencies. So there's just improved trust, and that makes operations more efficient, especially when you're dealing with large business networks, supply networks at that. We do not propose, continuing, we do not propose a one-size-fits-all, totally naked view of the world. As with all good things, transparency has a law of diminishing returns. Exposing proprietary trade and competitive secrets or private employee and customer data can severely damage, even destroy a company and its stakeholders. There are <clears throat> obvious examples. A bank should always protect the secrecy of its customers' bank balances, uh, account balances, but sometimes the right answer is less than obvious. Is it in Microsoft's interest to publish the proprietary source code of the Windows operating system? Resolving such trade-offs, as we shall see, is the art of competitive strategy in a world of business webs. In the old economy, supplier relationships were routinely combative. Companies told suppliers to cut prices or lose their business. Buyers and sellers used whatever privileged knowledge they had, what economists call information asymmetries. Yeah, it's information asymmetries is, is where one side, and I've explained this in a previous chapter, <clears throat> probably season seven, episode one, the first episode, go listen to it. <laughs> Rewind back if you are unfamiliar with information asymmetries. I go into it briefly, but I'll go into it briefly now. Information asymmetries is when one side has information of a different quantity or quality than the other. Now, it doesn't mean that they have an automatic advantage because there's there are information asymmetries. It's just that the, inform, the information is different. And how one side chooses to capitalize on that asymmetry could lend itself to giving them an advantage. It could also disadvantage them if they don't take advantage of it in a manner that leads to, uh, let's say, mutual gain, right? If, if both sides don't come away from a transaction having gained something, that means they failed to utilize their information asymmetries in a collaborative fashion. They were really uh, positional, really adversarial. They were really going at each other's throats. They were really going for a win-lose or a lose-win situation. I mean, I, stop saying I mean, right? 
That's just me talking to myself. Stop saying I mean. If conflict ever exists, I think alternative dispute resolution lends itself more to creating mutual gain than mutual loss. You just got to think. You just got to leverage your information asymmetries in a complementary manner. And that, that requires transparency. If not, compl- if not supplementary, at least complementary. That is transparency. And that cultivates trust. In the old company, supplier relationships, I uh, already read that piece. Now, suppliers participate in the business web. Continuing. Competition is often business web versus business web rather than merely firm versus firm. In these situations, suppliers function as partners rather than adversaries. Undue secrecy, win-lose negotiating, and an insistence on exclusivity become counterproductive. Did I Did I just not? <laughs> Alex, you're a fucking savage. You know that? Sometimes I got to pat myself on the back. It's as if I could foretell what the book will provide to us next. I appreciate that I have this capability. I appreciate that I'm competent enough that I've been given this talent and I, I hone it on a daily basis because this is what I do for a living. This is what I do professionally as a corporate cowboy. So I got to hand it to God, right? Continuing. Cisco, for example, knows that its suppliers pay for components, labor, and facilities. It sees through the value chain, negotiates appropriate margins with partners, and balances its short-term interest in minimizing costs against its long-term interest in the robustness of its suppliers. Cisco's suppliers have a new kind of power derived, ironically, from their vulnerability. Transparency liberates them to detail the costs of their operation so they win fair treatment on strategic grounds. Quote, we are, we are removing the boundaries of the firm. Everyone's business is everyone's business, end quote, says Celestica CEO Eugene Polistuk. Celestica, along with its competitors like Selectron, provides contract manufacturing to Cisco and other brand name electronics companies. Quote, before we had networks of data, now we have intelligent systems based on standards. The openness, the pervasiveness, the speed, and the sheer volume of information is redefining the way we work together, end quote. The faster the information, the better. Instantaneous information about demand, special promotions, quality, availability, and any glitches that happen along the way, all enabled by next-generation information systems, ensures that the right products appear at the right place at the right time, while keeping inventory to a minimum. Managers who either hide or lack information about their own firm's operations cannot manage human capital and transparent relationships within a B-Web. Bill Watkins is president and chief operating officer of Seagate Technology, a company that builds 
hard disk storage devices for computers. It's a highly competitive business. Quote, our product cycles last six months to a year, but they take two years to develop. Price is constantly dropping and storage capacity is constantly increasing. So to survive, it takes a culture where you can't hide problems. We don't have time for that. End quote. The company must be honest with customers when problems occur, which can be a challenge when other companies practice deception. Quote, there are always issues, but we can explain that they are issues we can control. So we say, we have a problem here, but don't panic. How do you communicate that when others have the tendency to massage data, to hide problems? Some customers will overreact. Most respond properly. In our long-term relationships, our customers know to trust us. Openness builds trust, end quote. This is the theory and potential of transparency in business webs. The reality proves the potential often enough, but not always. Subheading, the reality. United States labor productivity growth began to accelerate in 1995 in tandem with the growth of the internet. Productivity increased from an average annual growth rate in the 1.5% range to better than 2.5%. In the recession of 2002, companies tightened spending and used what economist Robert Samuelson described as Darwinian techniques to get more out of fewer employees and tighter information technology investments. The growth rate jumped to a remarkable 4.8%. Transparency and trust in the business web were critical in industries like retail and wholesale distribution, led by Walmart, semiconductors, led by Intel, and computer assembly by Dell, that enjoyed some of the biggest productivity breakthroughs. It may seem strange that trust mechanisms are only now being formalized in various industries, but the legacy among most trading partners is mistrust and concealment. But only in the 1980s, says P&G Global External Relations Officer Charlotte Otto, quote, was there a mind shift, was, was there a mindset shift from thinking of retailers as a necessary evil to thinking of them as our partners? Indeed, uh, the end quote, indeed, Walmart's supply chain transparency in the aid of efficiency does not protect it from charges of unfair labor practices from unionists, media, and human rights proponents, while many suppliers grumble about its stubborn demands across the negotiating table. Mistrust, if not open warfare, still dominates many business-to-business relationships. Oh yes, yeah, it's corporate war. According to a 2001 cross-industry survey of suppliers like Allied Signal and Monsanto, manufacturers like IBM, Steelcase, Whirlpool, etc., and retailers like Amazon, Eddie Bauer, and Walmart by the Center of Advanced Purchasing Studies, a couple of points next. First point, no one manages the entire supply chain from end to end. Second point, most respondents view supply chain management as strategic, but are cynical 
about efforts to make it work. They lack management support internally and influence over trading partners externally. Third point, many still operate in an adversarial mode focused on gaining the upper hand on price or fooling competitors. Doubt and suspicion are widespread. Fourth point, most companies participate in many different supply chains. The resulting complexity is a big problem. Fifth point, managers are loath to share vital information even within their own firms, let alone with trading partners. Sixth point, tools, technology, and techniques for collaborating, sharing information, and streamlining business processes have yet to be widely adopted. Technological solutions that have been implemented are often insufficient, particularly in the absence of trust-based relationships and changes in daily operations. The cynic might ask, why not? After all, if firms want trust-based relationships, they can have them inside their own walls. If transaction costs are low enough to let firms procure goods and services externally, Surely this doesn't mean firms should forego their negotiating power. Getting the most for your money is what a competitive marketplace is all about. Outside suppliers, and for that matter, customers, are market agents whose legitimate goal is to use information asymmetries to maximize their own self-interest, making as few concessions as possible. Yeah, I mean, for the most part. And if we're talking about a hot corporate war, because I did mention there's, there's, it's a corporate war, right? But there's a difference between it being cold, it being hot. Now, if you're actively engaging one another and you're always in this sort of positional bargaining, always in this sort of positional negotiating from business to business, treating them as adversaries, treating them as competitors, you don't want to give up any ground. And you want to take up as much of theirs as possible, right? Instead, instead of making the pie larger, everybody's just fighting for every last crumb. They're focused already on the crumbs when they haven't started contemplating the size of the pie. And that's why that pie analogy is, is different. It can, it can be the parameters of that situation can change. The pie doesn't even exist yet. And they're already fighting for crumbs. That's the point I'm trying to get to. They haven't decided how large the pie is, the extent to which the pie can be enlarged even, and they're already fighting for crumbs. Fucking the game up for all of us. And corporate cowboys have to regulate from the inside or from the outside. Corporate corporate cowboys are fucking capable as fuck. Yet... Whatever the industry, I'm continuing, whatever the industry from retail to automotive to pharmaceuticals, the cards close to the chest alternative leads to the notorious bullwhip effect. Procter and Gamble executives coined the term after studying the demand for Pampers disposable diapers. Babies naturally use diapers at a steady and predictable rate, resulting in uniform retail sales trends, but retailer and distributor orders varied and PNG's own orders to its materials officers fluctuated even more. 
small events. For example, a postponed order followed by a large order, a larger order than usual, were amplified wildly as they moved up the chain. Hence, the bullwhip. So, for a little bit more, uh, a little bit more description, I guess, to help understand. If you didn't understand the bullwhip, because I fucked up reading that paragraph. Essentially, one small change at the retail level in terms of inventory, right? Consider that a flick of the wrist while you're holding a bullwhip. And that chain travels along the bullwhip. So the need for more or less inventory, by the time it reaches the end of the bullwhip, well, I mean, you have the most effect. You have the most effect. So you're either your your store shelves are either out of Pampers diapers, or you have, or you are overloaded on Pampers diapers, and your back your back room the the stock room is fucking. You got two extra pallets of Pampers diapers and don't know what the fuck to do with them. That's the bullwhip effect, where any small change in the beginning, in the beginning of this retail chain, further down the line, the supply chain, further down the supply line. The effects are magnified. So if you could have the information be communicated instantly, instantaneously as to what the conditions are at the store level, then at the, at the supply level, down the supply line, the changes aren't so drastic. It's as if the bullwhip, the bullwhip, is it whips less? Yeah, the bullwhip whips less because it moves with you. Not in relation to you. It moves with you. The result is a costly collection of inventory and timing imbalances. A hey, boy, Alex, hardly ever misses. Too much pulp or plastic in a supplier warehouse and too few diapers at your local store. In industries like, hold on, because that was a, that was a, that was a half a sentence because I, uh, I congratulated myself. The result is a costly collection of inventory and timing imbalances. Too much pulp or plastic in a supplier house, in a supplier warehouse, and too few diapers at your local store. In industries like diapers, where profit margins on sales are typically on the low single digits, such foul ups really stink. I mean, that was a horrible play on words, but we'll take it because we're talking about diapers, right? In others, like consumer electronics, where an entire where a product's entire shelf life can be six months, the bullwhip effect can be catastrophic. You see, if they really wanted to, they should have doubled up on the wordplay, especially with consumer electronics, because they talk about the first industry like diapers, and they say, fucking it up really stinks. Get it? Hey, diapers. And the second one here, they use consumer electronics, and they don't even fucking... They don't even follow through. All right, whatever. <laughs> Alex, calm down. Fucking OCDS on the spectrum ass. It gets worse. Continuing. It gets worse. The great fiasco of the telecom supply chain in 2000, 2001 was the result of over-optimistic projections up and down the line. Distributors like Tech Data, Ingram Micro, and Maricel Past big forecasts to manufacturers like Cisco and Nortel, who in turn ordered more finished assemblies from suppliers like Celestica and Selectron. Much of the over-optimism was defensive in nature, 
each distributor was reserving production on spec to stay ahead of everyone else. Similarly, Celestica and Selectron hedged their bets with big forecasts to component suppliers. Everyone wanted to make sure they had enough goods to meet anticipated demand. <clears throat> I'm laughing because that, that's the bullwhip effect, essentially. Everyone wanted to make sure they had enough goods to meet anticipated demand. No one realized that the total volume being stocked across the country was many times what the market would bear. When demand wilted, an entire industry went down the chute. Here and elsewhere, the fundamental cause of the bullwhip effect is opacity. Supply chain participants failing to share information in a timely fashion. The next subheading, leaders lead with transparency. Leaders lead with transparency. A McKinsey study illustrates how industry leaders apply transparency to such problems. It found that the top productivity driver is well-targeted technological innovation, typically in the form of applications like customer databases, inventory management, interactive voice response systems, and in the example of the semiconductor industry, clever tools for microprocessor design and manufacturing. Several of these applications increase information flow. A new approach to transparent, trust-based partnering is very slowly spreading from retail to other industries. Collaborative planning, forecasting, and replenishment, CPFR as it is called, relies on three principles. The first, the process focuses on consumer demand and value chain success rather than on the parochial interests of individual participants. Two, trading partners jointly develop a single shared forecast that they use to plan activities across the supply chain. All parties are accountable for the defining terms of a transparently shared forecast. Nice, I like that. That sounds, that sounds moist, I like that. Three, <laughs> all parties commit to the forecast by sharing the risks entitled in removing constraints, such as access to current sales, information, or advice on changes in market conditions. Shared accountability for transparency strengthens short-term performance and long-term trust. I like that. The reason I say uh, moist is because the more moist business transactions are, the less blood money you need. <laughs> the, more, the more elbow grease participants put in the work, the more work they actually put in, the less blood money you need. So you make of that what you will. With transparency in place, retailers can confidently tackle other areas of productivity improvement. One is more precise merchandise planning that enables them to have the right product on the right shelf at the right time. Another is revenue management, which lets them set list and sale prices with precision, pre precision, precision. Major players use sophisticated software for both merchandising planning and revenue management, but all these are for not if the B-Web fails falls if 
But all these are for naught if the bee web falls victim to the bullwhip effect. Without trust and transparency, retail performance can be iffy. However, only a handful of companies are succeeding with CPFR. Most retailers don't want to tip their competitors to next week's Pampers promotion. So they play it close to the chest, while Walmart beats them on volume with everyday low pricing. Johnson & Johnson supply chain executive Mark Lettner describes the dynamics of transparency and trust among B-Web partners. It's a block quote. We have oh, a <laughs> funny-ass accent. No, no, don't do it, Alex. <clears throat> we have two supply chains, the most elaborate, sophisticated, and heavily invested in the supply chain for direct materials, things that go into the finished product. The end objective is for everyone along the supply chain to understand the end unit forecast, how the product is going into the market to mitigate their risk. We share scheduling and forecast information with them. They share quality, sometimes cost information with us. All this is essential to support a flow of continuous daily supplier deliveries rather than the old approach of once a month deliveries. For indirect materials, that's carpets, chairs, construction, information technology that make up two thirds of what we buy, we are looking for the supplier to provide that product and add some value, like installing the carpets and setting up the, the computer drops. There, the level of sophistication and control is lower. Not crude, but we share much less tactical information. I get it, I get it. As, as the product or the service becomes more labor intensive, <clears throat> the information shared, I think naturally, it doesn't even have to be tactically, naturally, is going to drop off some, is going to scale down a little bit. Why? Because as it becomes labor intensive, you have more participation, more human participation, uh, more hands in the kitchen, uh, if that makes sense. So while the communication um, might be might be not, not as uh, qualified, it can be more, it's, it's more quantified because you have more and more factors. You have more human uh more human factors yeah but you you've you've added more variables so the information that's going to be shared it's going to be um if they are not all on the same page and sharing information instantaneously i mean there's, there's only two ways it can go about it right there's only two ways to go about it it's either being shared instantaneously or there's going to be some lag time between one another between the agents because of the increase in variables Variables that are not technological, variables that are not computers, that are not, I don't know, AI, not linked together, talking instantly. Transparency ch changes the dynamics of price negotiations. Is this still a block quote? Yeah, this is still a block quote. And this is coming from, reminder, from Mark Lettner. He's a supply chain executive, a supply chain executive of Johnson & Johnson. Transparency changes the dynamics of price negotiations. The last thing we want, I should have done this in an accent. The last thing we want is our suppliers not making money. And the J&J &J credo says our suppliers should have an opportunity to make a profit. In the ideal negotiation, we all know what it costs or should cost a supplier to deliver something based on historical information, 
experts, and so on. And we negotiate price based on that. Reverse auctions help us get even clearer on what is the lowest price a supplier can afford. I'd rather pay eight cents more in profit rather than have a supplier bury it in a supposed cost structure. Transparency essentially, <clears throat> I messed that one up. Transparency, transparency, especially with direct material suppliers, goes much deeper into supporting a group of special relationships. That was another little subheading. Transparency, especially with direct materials suppliers, goes much deeper into supporting a group of special relationships. The word partnership is overused. This is still a block quote, mind you. Less than a hundred of our 30,000 plus suppliers, I would say, are true partners. But where we have these partnerships, we might review forecasts, clinical research, such as new claims, we are trying to develop for a medication, even advertising. We're trying to get them excited about our business. The next little subheading in this block quote, it also helps motivate a courageous company to help raise the quality of competition across its industry. And Mr. Mark Lettner continues, we will use any expertise we have, including process expertise technology, and so on to help a key supplier be successful. Because if they aren't successful, we won't be successful. What really makes us happy is when we take what we've taught them and they go off and market it elsewhere, even to our competitors. Because at the end of the day, we don't compete on price or a particular packaging or technique, but on our ability to execute. Yo, that sounds gangster as fuck, man. That sounds so G. Uh, end plot, and that was the end of the block quote. That was a good ending too. Okay, we could tell. <clears throat> it, the rest continues. We could tell similar stories about transparency leaders in other industries, companies like Southwest Airlines, General Electric, Charles Schwab, Federal Express, and not surprising when you think about it, the U.S. military. Typically, these organizations have achieved lopsided advantages relative to their competition whether on price or innovation, and sometimes on both, by focusing especially on real-time information systems that deliver up-to-date news and decision-making support to anyone in the business web who needs it, using their knowledge to be demanding of their suppliers on quality and price performance, they also typically do the most to help their suppliers succeed. Once present, such advantages become mission critical. For winners, transparency is increasingly a matter of survival. The next subheading, standard fittings. Standard fittings. A special kind of transparency reduces the likelihood of the trauma that IBM endured during the 1980s when it lost control over the PC marketplace to Microsoft and Intel. This is the transparency that open standards make possible. Open standards are nothing new. They have been part of industrial society since its inception. The humble electric plug is a perfect example. You can buy any electric appliance in with the confidence that it plugs into and runs on any standard wall socket. 
No one owns the rules for making electric plugs or designing electric products that use them. In the United States, Underwriters Laboratories, that's UL, an independent non-for-profit organization tests and certifies the safety of electric products. When the electrical code changes, for example, with the rise of three-pronged grounded plugs, they change for everyone. No company controls the three-pronged design. Such open rules are more widespread than you might think. Industrial plumbing and lighting, automotive components such as spark plugs and tires, telephone networks, auditing, generally accepted accounting principles from auditing, and many other goods and services rely on open standards. With such standards, manufacturers and service providers know that piece parts from various sources will plug into and play with one another. Standards for mechanisms for certifying compliance, i.e. transparency, and provide a level playing field for innovation. Standards are mechanisms, it says. Having these standards, having these open standards. Having these open standards. Mm, mm, mm. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, having standards that they could all play with together means that they can work together. That's a beautiful thing. Computer manufacturers shift to Linux is a competitive strategy, a lesson learned from the PC debacle. Hewlett Packard and IBM chose to de-emphasize homegrown, quote, legacy operating systems in favor of Linux. This meant treating the operating system as a neutral, standard-fitting, rather than as a differentiating basis for competitive activity. Many parts of the internet, like email, and, and technologies that connect to the internet, like Wi-Fi networks, are similarly open and standards-based. The benefits of an open Linux are many. A couple of points here. First point, by taking operating systems off the table as a basis for making money, IBM and HP gain a, gain a potent, they gain a potent weapon for competing against arch rivals, Microsoft and Sun, both of which depend on operating systems, Windows and Solaris, respectively, to make their financial targets. A collateral benefit is a shift in focus to other areas of strength, like services, business software, and hardware. Point two, historically, IBM and HP produced and maintained various operating systems for large-scale and specialized computers. Linux provides the cost-saving prospect and simplicity, one operating system for everything. This, this does not come at zero cost. Both employees spend heavily to improve and adapt Linux. Nevertheless, they also get to draw on the free services of outside volunteers who add features and credibility to Linux. Point three, Hewlett Packard and IBM gain economic and moral high ground with customers who are happy to pay little or nothing for a key technology. Linux plays well with governments and in emerging markets. It's also winning on Mar on Wall. It's also winning on Wall Street and in the manufacturing companies of the Midwest. 
Fourth point, Linux helped these companies learn to pick up on innovative next generation concepts like grid computing, which like Linux originally, which like Linux originated at the bohemian fringe of the computer industry. Sorry about that. Sorry for that pause. Actually, let me repeat that. <clears throat> this is this is our podcast, so I'll do with it how I please. But for catharsis' sake, I'm going to repeat that last point because I misread it. Linux helped these companies learn to pick up on innovative next-generation concepts like grid computing, which Linux originated at the bohemian fringe of the computer industry. Bravo, Alex. Continuing, Linux is one of many standard fittings in today's computing environments, but transparent standard fittings, already a given in many industries from railways to meatpacking, continue to appear in new areas to support innovation and cost reduction while meeting the needs of diverse stakeholders. There are a couple of points here. First point, RFID, RFID tags and their low-tech precursor barcodes are standard fittings for retail and logistics companies. Neutral industry bodies like MIT's Auto ID Center and the Uniform Code Council, that's the UCC, develop and manage the rules of use as open, non-proprietary standards. Point two, the genetic code is a standard fitting for life. Celera Genomics, after a brief and passionate fling at privatizing the human gene sequence backed out of the business. It left the field to the Public Science Human Genome Project, many of whose leaders kept the overall sequence in the public domain. Meanwhile, companies and universities have quietly patented pat oof. Meanwhile, companies and universities have quietly patented many individual human genes. Sounds retarded. The US patent and trademark office has a backlog of thousands of new gene patent applications. Should genes be patentable? I don't think so. But if they are, shit, that's the that's the playing field we're playing on. That's the playing field we have to bet on. That's the playing field we have to make moves in. Corporate cowboys, baby. Gotta adapt. Adapt and survive. Only the fittest survive. Point three, fundamental to the entire economy are rules about money, the standard fitting of commerce. Though the underlying dynamics may be difficult to fathom, key assumptions, exchange and interest rates are usually well known and set throughout an ultimately visible process. Central banks like the Federal Reserve set interest rates while currency exchange rates set by traders in an open market are known to all. Firms support transparent and shared ownership of standard fittings when they see a business case. IBM puts its market and brain power behind Linux for competitive reasons. Walmart and P&G back RFID because lean high performers like them will be best at gaining competitive advantage in the industry-wide initiative. Defeat caused Celera's retreat. 
unable to make money from the genome, the company shifted to pharmaceuticals. Mm. So profit motive kept them out of patenting genes, huh? Next subheading is peer production. That's P-E-E-R production, peer production. So what your peers produce. Peer production. The examples we've been discussing all illustrate a special and powerful kind of production mechanism, one whose continuing vitality depends on transparency in the intellectual commons. We tend to think of production and supply chains as being either inside an individual firm or the result of marketplace transactions. In either case, hierarchically, hierarchically managed by a boss or a buyer. Yet neither in-firm nor firm market hierarchical transaction truly describes the production mechanisms for Linux, RFID standards, the human genome sequence, or the evolution of basmati rice over centuries. See chapter one, or, or to the listener, go listen to season seven, episode one, or where they describe the evolution of basmati rice over the centuries and how and how they try to gank gank that intellectual property from indian growers wild it was a texas company at that i mean i'm all for capitalism i'm all for the us right but you couldn't just shake hands and make money together god damn look at california making deals with china <laughs> in all in all these cases a self-organizing, transparent, and trust-based cooperative mechanism is at work, whereby individuals and businesses carve out pieces of a problem, work on them a bit, and contribute the results to a larger, more or less self-managing group. Out of the agglomeration and integration of these individual contributions, a new outcome takes shape. Linux a complex industrial quality operating system may be the most striking, but it is neither the only nor the most recent example of what some call peer production, in quotes, peer production. We described such models in Digital Capital, their book, as the alliance form of business web. Peer production. Uh, now I'm wondering if it's what your peer produces or it's you producing your peers and your peers producing one another. Ooh, ooh, sounds symbiotic, sounds synthetic. I like it, I like it. Alliance production is especially good for knowledge endeavors, particularly collective innovation and the social arts like jazz and multiplayer games. Alliances often produce better results than, hier than hierarchies or markets, especially when a project is broken into modules to be worked by several or many peer individuals or companies. Why? Alliances draw on the varied capabilities to be found among a self-selecting collection of contributors, rather than assign a task to someone because it's that person's job or because of a contract, people select themselves on the basis of their belief in their own suitability for the task at hand. Woo! Sounds like some corporate cowboy shit. I like that. Peer production. Mm, mm, okay, okay. Then, 
peers assess each contribution for adoption into the larger whole on the basis of merit, only after the contributor produces it. I like that. I really do. Does stockholder web work for us as a new bit of business jargon? No. <laughs> I just straight up said no. Because, I, I mean, it's just networks. It's networks. Why, why are they stockholder webs? Why are they business webs? It's just networks. And these, ne- these networks have, have individualized names. They have names of groups. They have group names. They don't have general names. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm now becoming too granular with it. We're like, I've, okay, I've seen the general name. It's a business web or a stockholder web. And um, I'm just diving deeper. I'm not satisfied with just the generalized term. And I'm digging deeper into actual networks, which is, again, along the lines of a corporate cowboy. But I shouldn't <clears throat> jump the gun, so to speak, too quick. I know using guns is a forte, but it should be a last resort. I mean, go look, go listen to, uh, I think it's season four off the top of my head. Nah, it's not coming to me, but it's somewhere in season four where it should be your last resort to jump the gun, right? And you should only be, you know, pulling triggers, squeezing triggers as a last resort. But a stockholder web, a business web as generalized names okay, they pass. But then these networks have group names and group identities. That's the shit you want to drill on. Does this chunk, continuing, does this chunk of Linux code really do the trick? Is this gene sequence description scientifically credible? Do we agree on how to use RFIDs to describe the contents of a shopping cart? Such mechanisms can only work if information flows transparently and relationships embellish trust. Peer production is especially useful when creativity and collaboration are at a premium. With the technology revolution, information has become a readily available factor of production. Unlike physical resources like machines and electricity, knowledge and culture have the unique property of being non-rival. The use value of knowledge, a pop tune, a piece of computer software, a new way to manage inventory in a retail store is not diminished when it is shared. In other words, knowledge doesn't wear out. (laughs) Shit, you would think it does. You would think it does because some motherfuckers like to uh, take knowledge and hoard it, store it away, keep it away, and then it's forgotten and well, nobody wins from it. They definitely don't win by hoarding it. Actually, they tend to get knocked off the most. Meanwhile, the physical resources for knowledge production, computers, and communication networks are cheap and pervasive. Today's scarce resources are human creativity and collaboration, and it is here that peer production shines. That's wild. It's pretty much saying that there is no material scarcity. It's a intangible scarcity. It's a scarcity of the lack of working. It's the the lack of working together, the lack of talking to one another, the lack of handshaking, the lack of doing business essentially. And if you're not doing business, what the fuck are you doing? Critically in the peer production, sorry, critically in peer production, 
the outcome of work is shared among contributors, sponsoring patrons, and sometimes beyond. Whether exclusively among paid-up members of, of, a, of an industry consortium, as with MIT's Auto ID Group, or with the general public, as with Linux or the genome sequence, as we discuss in the next section, such commons are the lifeblood of peer production. Arguably, the entire World Wide Web is a peer production extravaganza whose best reference tools, that's Google for now, rely on peer production mechanisms. Because outcomes are shared, only some companies make money from peer production. The Internet's transparency-enabling facilities make it easier. Not only Google, but also Amazon and, to a degree, eBay use peer production techniques. Other examples include online games, chat groups, weblogs, mutual help and support, whether of a personal, technical, or medical nature. Companies that, quote, host such services can make money directly from the peer production, that's the selling access or the results, or from related sources, that's advertising or product sales. Others invest in peer production to provide a foundation of related money-making activities. When an IBM Hewlett-Packard or Oracle works for free to help Linux to help develop it as a standard fitting, it does so with the prospect of selling software and related services. When Walmart and P&G contributes people and money toward next generation RFID standard fittings, their game plan is to profit from a more efficient supply chain. When Pfizer contributes its scientists to help decode the human genome, it hopes for a payoff in new drug patents. But money isn't the only reason for helping out, supposedly, supposedly. People, even firms, may engage in peer production for non-materialistic reasons, like fun or fame. Yeah, actually, I can get behind that, the fun. Shit looks like fun, shit is fun. Doing dirt is fun. <laughs> putting in work, I'm sorry, not doing just outright dirt, right? But do, putting in work, putting in the work, being, in a being a corporate cowboy is fun. Often, that is enough, especially if the activity is part-time and doesn't interfere with necessary materialistic pursuits. Yeah, like making money, like doing business. You're having fun doing it. Software developers contribute to Linux because they enjoy writing code. It's fun. While hoping to gain stature and trust from their peers. That's fame. Some profit also monetize some profit or also monetize their stature via consulting contracts, jobs, publishing, and so on. For academic researchers, the, the economics of peer production are tried and true. Social capital can sometimes lose value when dollars cross. Quote, an act of love drastically changes meaning when one person offers the other money at the end. Ooh, and a dinner party guest who will take out a checkbook at the end of a dinner instead of bringing flowers or a bottle of wine at the beginning will likely never be invited again. Ooh, I like that. I like that. What's exciting is that mainly because of the internet's pervasiveness as a transparent collaboration tool, 
peer production is on the increase. Our main examples, Linux and the Human Genome Project, are among the most powerful. Linus Torvalds, originator and leader of the Linux Initiative, says that without the internet, a self-organizing motley crew of hackers from around the world could not have created an industrial strength operating system to challenge Microsoft and gain the allegiance of IBM and Hewlett Packard. Dr. Eric Lander, director of MIT's Center for Genome Research, told us that the internet chopped many years off the Human Genome Project. It's the power of communication, baby. The next subheading, transparency in the commons. Alliance peer production depends on trusting and sharing. When you freely contribute your best, you must be confident that it will not be stolen or used against you. You must have full use of the outputs. Free writing must be rare. Evaluation and integration of your and others' inputs must be fair and effective. Reciprocity engenders trust. The outputs will be available to everyone in the club. We are describing the quote commons. The Oxford English Dictionary another big peer production project, equates the commons to a resource held in common, that's in joint use or possession, to be held or enjoyed equally by a number of persons. As digital commons advocate Lawrence Lessig suggests, a resource held in common is, quote, free to those persons. Free in this sense does not mean that the resource is handed over for no payment. Rather, a resource is, quote, free if, one, one can use it without the permission of anyone else, or two, the permission one needs is granted neutrally. The commons is a resource to which anyone within the relevant community has a right without obtaining the permission of anyone else. Common information is transparent and transparent information is common. It isn't easy to protect a commons, whether physical or informational. Free riders try to use it up. Encroachers try to seek, encroachers seek to privatize it. When this happens, trust and sharing decline. Battles over commons mean work for lawyers. Go, Alex. Linux and other open source software find protection in a special copyright that all their users must sign called the public, no, called the general public license, the GPL. It makes Linux available at no cost, including its inner workings or, quote, source code, but requires all users to share also at no cost any changes or improvements they make to it. Anyone can have it and anyone can make it better as long as they share. You might think that the internet was always broaden, no, sorry, you might think that the internet would always broaden the commons. Lessig, himself a lawyer and law professor, focuses on threats to the commons in large scale, highly visible peer production and cultural phenomena like music, books, and computing. He argues, and we agree, 
that while creators and publishers require copyright protection as an incentive to produce, such protection should be limited in time and scope. In the 1790s, in the 1790s, 13,000 titles were published in the United States, but only 556 were filed for copyrights and these enjoyed limited protection. Now, all works are copyrighted automatically. Initially, a copyright lasted only 14 years and could be extended only if the author were still alive. Since then, the US Congress has gotten into the copyright extension business. It has retroactively extended copyrights, copyright laws 11 times since the early 1960s. In 1998, the act extended the copyright to 70 years from 50 after an author's death and to 95 years from 75 after publication for works owned by firms. The act is named after Sonny Bono, the late pop singer and congressman who said, wait, Sonny Bono was a congressman? No. Who said, quote, the copyright should be forever minus a day. That's funny. Walt Disney and other media companies were major lobbyists for the bill, without which Mickey Mouse would have begun entering the public domain in 2003. Music swapping based on Napster and its successors on the internet has only made the industry more passionate about protecting copyrights. As Lessig argued in April 2002 before the US Supreme Court, such repeated copyright extensions threaten to keep culture in private hands forever. These practices reduce culture to a private commodity, but creativity thrives in an open, free space. Every creator stands on the shoulders of other artists and our communal heritage. In this sense, culture is in part a peer production phenomenon. Disney, says Lessig, ripped, mixed, and burned Centuries-old legends like Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. That's fucking true. I mean, where is the lie? Show me the point. Me to the lie. Walt himself stole Mickey's precursor, Steamboat Willie, from Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill movie character in 1928. Lessig's and our preferred approach is to return to the standard of the founding fathers. Copyrights should last 14 years or thereabouts. Actually, I like that. I do like that. Sadly, sadly though, in January 2003, the Supreme Court turned down Lessig's plea to squash, to quash. Sorry. Sadly, in January 2003, the Supreme Court turned down Lessig's plea to quash the 1998 copyright extension. Such problems are not limited to pop music and movies. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has been issuing patents for naturally occurring human genome, human gene sequences since 1980. By 2003, over 2,000 human genes were patented internationally by private companies, universities, hospitals, and government agencies. Tens of thousands of additional applications were before various patent offices. The result? 
a widening a widening battle over whether genetic information will be accessible to stakeholders, that's patients, caregivers, funders, and researchers. One important case involves Utah-based Myriad Genetics, which in 1997 patented BRCA1, a gene that predicts the likelihood of breast cancer. The patent gives Myriad the right to decide how other companies use the gene for diagnosis and treatment. That sounds so fucking retarded. To charge royalties for using the gene in research and development and to bar its use. It shouldn't. That sounds ridiculous. That sounds, I mean, so you're telling me whatever's not in this book, like the cure for cancer, is already patented and more than likely is not reported on? We're back to, uh, what is that, season seven, episode two, I think it was. That's like the 100 mile to the gallon carburetor. That shit exists, but it's not in production because there's quote unquote less money. It's not that there's no money behind, there's less money. So that brings us back to that win-lose or lose-win situation. When we could be (laughs) win-winning. The company also patented, much more reasonably, a test that it invented for BRA, BRCA1 and a related gene. It actively enforces a near monopoly on breast cancer tests that rely on the gene and dictates terms to academics who want to do new research and develop new treatments. Myriad has fear, merely, Myriad is fiercely protective of its multi-million dollar testing business, which it markets aggressively to doctors and hospitals. Several researchers in the United States and elsewhere have identified new avenues of research based on BRCA1, but the company has stymied their visions of improved therapies. It refuses to approve or to perform new, sometimes cheaper tests that rely on its genes, in quotes, its genes. Oh, man. See, because this book was written back in 2002, right? So I don't know, maybe corporate cowboys didn't exist or maybe corporate cowboys were just in, in, in the making. I mean, shit, I, I wasn't in the game back in 2002. But if I were, continuing. <laughs> in January 2003, the normally pro-business conservative government of Ontario decided to defy Myriad and use a much cheaper competing test. Nice. Provincial Health Minister Tony Clement called gene patenting abhorrent, saying, quote, we do not accept their patent claim and we are disregarding their claim. This is a fight for access to women who might have a predisposition to breast or ovarian cancer. I mean, didn't we just find out men can get it too? So this is a cure for cancer. Fight and cure cancer. I, I don't know why this is so mainstream, so, so above board for just this one cancer. I mean, it should be for all cancers, right? It should be for all disease. That'd be nice, right? Then we could all be uh, diseaseless. We could be illness, illnessless, and just you know fight each other on 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 neutral grounds. Fight each other. Compete with them. Hold on, not no, not not fight, not compete, not battle, not war, right? But work together on common grounds without fucking excuses, without excuses of any kind. That would be nice. This is a fight for access. He said he was prepared to fight Myriad's Canadian patent 
to the highest courts of the land. Ontario was neither alone nor the first. Challenges to Myriad's European patents began in 2001. How could this happen, you may ask? How can any company gain patent rights over the genetic code of the human body, the defining essence of our common heritage? Typically, patents are granted for inventions of new things, not for centuries of exist not sorry, not for discoveries of existing things. Patents are normally granted only to inventions, not natural phenomena. For example, you can't patent a new insect species that you find in the wild. Surely, if anything is part of the commons, it must be our genetic code. What was the patent and trademark office thinking? I mean, they probably weren't. <laughs> Proponents of gene patents argue that the genomic revolution is now the basis for the design of drugs and tests for most diseases. The cost of bringing new drugs to market can be in the hundreds of millions. Without patents protection of gene sequence therapies, drug companies risk losing their inventions to copycats. They will be less inclined to invest and humanity will be the loser. Okay, what about open source? Really? Nobody's fucking... What about open source? You can you can build and still make money. Like IBM and what? P&G, all these other folks who are using open standards. They're still in business. They're strong. They're making money. They're almost as if in the background, just pulling strings like puppeteers. But no, instead, these drug companies want to go want to go millions millions into debt millions into investment almost as if a forced investment and then they want to claim we have we have all of these sunken costs what if we don't make a dime off of it what if we don't make what if we don't re recuperate what we've invested into it when you then share this burden of the investments with everyone else through open source you don't have to worry about that the money just comes to you Fucking retards. <laughs> <clears throat> to receive a patent, the invention must be novel, non-obvious, and useful. Drugs and tests meet this standard, but genes? Initially, the Patent and Trademark Office was fairly quick and cooperative in granting patents. It justified the decision to treat gene sequences as inventions because their proponents synthesized the sequences separately from their presence in the genome strand. Also, well, then, then it's the same thing. It's just a reproduction of something natural, right? It, <laughs> there's nothing special about it. Until you actually create or mutate the gene, the base gene, it should not be patentable. Sorry, I'm going off on a, on a rant, on a tangent. Continuing, continuing. Until the late 1990s, isolating a gene was slow, expensive, manual test tube work. Myriad spent millions to isolate BRCA1. I bet you it didn't. A dollar says it. A dollar says it did. A dollar says it doctored a lot of its reports and documents and, sh and balance sheets. And, and then is using that as a basis for, but we've sunk so many costs into this. What if the gene, considering the gene quote find, the gene find was clearly of value in preventing disease. Under these conditions, the argument that the invention was novel, non-obvious and useful stood up, you see? So they pinned it all against 
on the fact that they spent money to do it, right? Instead of taking it like a fucking champ, rolling with the punches and innovating, doing it moving as you go, or as they say in the Bay, doing that shit moving, right? Instead of doing it moving and being a fucking hustler, being an innovator in the space, instead you become a salty, a salty bitch. (laughs) However, thanks to technology, all this has changed, right? They say, now most gene research is conducted on computer models in in silico rather than in vitro. So that's in silico means uh, on the computer rather than in vitro. That's uh, in 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 glass. Vitro is glass. So like rather than actually having to work with it manually in test tubes, you can just do that on the computer now. The research uses standardized techniques, tools, and databases rather than a scientist with a PhD. A trained technician can do it. A gene sequence is no longer a non-obvious novelty. It does not require big investments. Many, if not most, applications in front of the patent offices are defensive in nature. The applicants don't necessarily know the functions of the purported sequence, nor can they explain how the patent will be made useful. Believe it or not, most human genetic information is useless junk. That's not true. Uh, go, go ahead, try to remove that shit. <laughs> See if you become useless. <laughs> yeah, oh, shit. But the more patents a company owns, the more likely it is to own some useful ones, while fewer useful patents will go to competitors. It's just becoming just becoming a fucking uh, a gold rush, essentially, a gold rush. And, and, uh, and, and gold in itself is a, uh, is a renewable resource, right? Gold in itself is a renewable, like it's, it's a non-exhaustible resource at that because, I mean, if you exhaust gold, you kill yourself. But it's renewable in the sense that you can reuse it. It's, it's as if non-depletable. <laughs> oh, shit. It's just a different, this is a different paradigm of thinking. That's all. It's just a different, like gold has value. But I don't know, maybe because it's so shiny, motherfuckers are drawn to it just for its luster. And um, and then you get wars from it. Like, but they, they don't know what the fuck they want to do with this power, right? It's They see gold, they see power, they want it. And then when they have it, they don't know what the fuck to do with it except hoard it. They, they don't know how to use it. They don't know how to share it, how to spread it, how to distribute it either, even. They aren't managers. They aren't leaders. They aren't bosses. They are only bitches. All right. I'm going to take it easy here because, I mean, we only have like a page and a half left. So continuing, continuing. The problem is that, as the myriad example illustrates, rather than promote innovation and the cost-effective delivery of healthcare services, gene patents retard innovation and increase costs to patients and providers. Gene patents are a force for opacity. I like the use of the word retard there because they're, yeah, they're, they're retarded. Research by Mildred Cho, a bioethicist at Stanford University, shows that patents of gene sequences deter new research and the design of new clinical tests. The other research reveals that growing numbers of university scientists engage in knowledge hoarding, 
concealing or slowing the publication of their research results, of their re <laughs> research results. Even worse is the threat of a patent in the form of a patent application. Cho comments, the number, quote, the number of people who are affected by an existing patent is smaller than those who might be affected by a future patent because there are more unknowns. When a gene sequence becomes frozen due to a patent application, other researchers tend to await the outcome of the application before working with the sequence. This is a future detriment to innovation. Thanks to the 1990 Bay-Doyle Bay Act, which gave US uni universities the rights to hold patents, the industrialization of academia is replacing open science. Ooh, ooh, we're, we're targeting academia now. Ah, the corporate war extends to education. I love it. One, <laughs> one analysis of this problem published in the Journal of the American Medical Association presents it as essentially a transparency issue. The quote, it's a block quote. Openness in the sharing of research results is a powerful ideal in modern science. Communalism, the shared ownership and free exchange of research results and approaches is a fundamental norm underlying the social structure of science. Such sharing is critical to the advancement of science. For without it, researchers unknowingly build on something less than the total accumulation of scientific knowledge. And scientific work is slowed by problems for which solutions already exist, but are unavailable. The power of the ideal of openness is reflected in the following quotation by Albert Einstein, inscribed on his statute in front of the headquarters of the National Academy of Sciences. And that's another quote. The right to search for truth implies also a duty. One must not conceal any part of what one has recognized to be true. And we see all kinds of concealment today, right? With <laughs> it's 2023. Dysmorphic motherfuckers are concealing themselves, are concealing the truth from themselves. That's funny as fuck. Nevertheless, oh, that's the end quote of Albert Einstein, but the block quote continues. Nevertheless, strong pressures, both pressure, both personal and external to researchers, may result in their breaching of the ideal of openness. Personal pressures include competition between researchers for priority and recognition. External pressures include the requirements of the promotion process, competition for funding, and processes and procedures procedures related to the commercialization of university research. What's the solution? In September 2002, the UK-based Nuffield, oh, that's the end of the block quote. What's the solution? In September 2002, the UK-based Nuffield Council on Bioethics published recommendations from an international panel of experts. It noted that many existing patents over DNA sequences are of doubtful validity. The group recommended that in the future, that in the that in the future, the granting of patents over DNA sequences should be the exception rather than the norm. Instead, the council suggested that patents could and should be granted for specific diagnostic tests based on DNA sequence sequence knowledge. 
It called on the patent offices of Europe, Japan, and the United States to join forces in order to fix the situation. Another approach was a 2002 motion by Congresswoman Lynn Rivers to protect medical researchers and genetic diagnosticians diagnosticians from patent infringement lawsuits. Clearly, and the reason I'm I'm not ranting on it or explaining is because it sounds relatively clear to me. Like it, it sounds clear to me. And I believe it sounds relatively clear to the listener, right? I mean, this is a pretty complex book, pretty advanced book. So, I mean, if you're, if you're not understanding that there, um, well, should I, guess I, I guess I could explain it. It's that in 2002, the Congresswoman was uh, trying to protect researchers and diag- diagnosticians who are using these patents without first getting permission from the patent owners, right? I mean, dog, it's the cure for fucking cancer. It's, it's the cure for... Uh, it's the cure to eugenics, essentially. <laughs> it's employing eugenics to solve eugenics. Instead of just creating eugenicists through patents, it's solving eugenicism. Eugenics. Yeah, solving eugenics through eugenics. Through the study of eugenics at that, right? So, like, it's not uh, – I'm not going to complicate the thing over. I'm not going to overcomplicate it. <clears throat> Clearly. Not everything should be in the quote comments. Standard methods for using RFID tags across retail supply chains should be. Competitive customer information and logistics techniques should not. New tunes and books should not, but after a while, they should. Our common human heritage, the genetic code, should remain in the comments. But newly invented health tests, treatments, and medicines should not at least not for the first 20 years or so. We are all stakeholders of the scientific and cultural artifacts on which creativity and invention depend. We must be careful in managing what shall be transparent and what's opaque, and for how long. That is the end of Chapter 5 of The Naked Corporation, The Age of Transparency, and how, no, 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 the, the end of chapter five, to the naked corporation, how the age of transparency will revolutionize business. I was about to say the age of transparency and how it will revolutionize business, but you know, I'm just, I guess, retitling the book. Don't do that, Alex, because there's a copywriter for the book. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Corporate Cowboys podcast. My name is Alex, yours truly. I will catch you next time. Take care.